Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Crucial places are... <laughs> All the time when I want to understand something about a person I only meet for a short, short time, I go there where he or she lives. And I feel that I have to get close to these places, to know them, to try to read those places, as long as they start to tell a story. So I decided to do that for this book. Travel to places. It's, there's something strange with the microphone, right? Here are like, no? Okay. Travel to places of Paula's Fox life and works all over America. She had been sent as a child and a young woman to the Hudson Valley, to Cape Cod, Florida, California, New England, New Orleans, and so on. So I went to those places. I will take you now with me first to New York, the Hudson Valley, then to San Francisco. The flow of life. She stood at the kitchen sink, filling the second vase with water. How are you? I asked. Well, there are more endings than beginnings now, she replied. I had called her to find out if I could drop by for tea. We had known each other for three years and during this time had corresponded occasionally. Now here I was, sitting in her Brooklyn kitchen again. Lucy the cat leapt onto the chair. Paula Fox had already arranged the flowers in a vase, yet a few minutes later she sprang from her seat and got a vase twice the size of the other one and rearranged the flowers. Now I can breathe better. Beaming, she added, so nice you're here. More endings than beginnings. That would become the beginning of this book. When, if not now, I thought, is a time to start collecting, capturing moments, noting down words, phrases from a person in whose literary work is woven a turbulent, even incredulous life. That was 2008 and Paula Fox was 85 years old. Where does a story begin? Which image should I evoke first? What do you attempt to hold onto when you utter the word beginning. 
Actually, my story with Paula Fox had begun seven years ago. Quote, you know, there isn't much to do in life once you fall through the surface of things. That's from her first, first novel, Poor George. That is precisely where Paula Fox's stories lead you, to places beneath the surface of things. Maybe I experienced something similar to the young protagonist in Paula Fox's last novel, The God of Nightmares, who sublet a room in the house of a young writer couple. Quote from Helen, the protagonist, the stories I had heard in the house on St. Philip Street had filled me up, like one of Gerald's suppers with contentment, with a sense of the variousness of people, with a sense of being in a safe place. But there are stories that can make you tremble with apprehension, with a knowledge of the frailty of life, that cut you out of life. It's from The God of Nightmares. I discovered that Paula Fox herself was heavily scarred from the sharp blade of life. Her parents had shunned their responsibility and abandoned her shortly after birth. They had given her newborn baby to a Manhattan foundling home. Like a little girl in a fairy tale, Paula was cast out and thrown to the randomness of destiny. Yet I had no doubt it was indeed this early experience of being cut out of life with which this author cut her language and carved her material. Connections would naturally be as complicated as an entire life, not simple and certainly not easy to grasp. And how could it be possible that a person severed from her roots at such an early age, wrenched and cut away, whose life could have taken a completely different turn, that such a person would write and tell binding, coherent stories in a distinctly unique voice? I was not the only one who felt this connection in Paula Fox's books. Ten years earlier, Jonathan Franzen had also experienced the raw power of Paula Fox's stories to parallel one's life. In his well-known Harper's essay, Franzen, the newly acclaimed novelist and intellectual, explained how in the midst of a personal crisis, his marriage um, um, break, broke down, he stumbled upon the over 20-year-old book's Desperate Characters by Paula Fox. He had not heard of the author before. The novel, novel about a middle-class couple set in a previous era, era presented an inextricable link to the here and now and the reality of his own life in 1991. Yeah. And he wrote in his essay, desperate characters seem to me obviously superior to any novel by Fox's contemporaries John Updike, Philip Roth, and Saul Bellow. Here the novel is, soaring above every other work of American fiction since World War II. Franzen would read and reread the novel. He would talk about his numerous readings in the preface of the re-edition. He would not hesitate to give a critique of the novel beyond his personal reading experience. Through Franzen's commitment and editor Tom Bissell's later on, not only all of Paula Fox's novel are reprinted, but glowing articles appeared in all of the best American newspapers, prizes, a large number of translations. And so it was that I too discovered Paula Fox in translation on the German market. I was smitten and intent on pursuing her trail. After years of reading, scattered after years of reading scattered articles about Paula Fox's novels and writing those articles, I finally set off for Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, New York. 
We had arranged to meet on February 26, 2005. It's the first time that a cat listens. That's very good, because there are cats in the, in the book. A voice, calls down from, a voice calls down from an open window, take the lower entrance. In front of the three-story brownstone located on a quiet residential street in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, there is snow on the ground. The garbage cans and plants in the front garden, covered with leftover patches of snow like open-air vestibules between the sidewalk and houses, I walked down the eight stone steps of the front stairs and opened the garden gate. Below, there are two more steps which lead to the basement entrance, the floor that is halfway below street level. Here, a weathered nameplate reads P. Fox M. Greenberg. I hear footsteps inside, a key turning in the lock, and a tall woman with short gray hair opens the door. A warm and dazzling smile sits in every crease of her wrinkled face. Come in. I follow her through the dark dining room, past the window staircase, the winding staircase leading to the upper floor and into the kitchen. A cat approaches on light paws. Hey, Lucy. Lucy has a damaged ear. Some neighbors gave her to me a while ago. All the strays on the street end up at my place. Paula Fox has the quick, energetic pace of a much younger woman, spry and decisive, always on the move. She climbs the flight of stairs to the upper floor ahead of me. The length and width of both sides of the small living room runs the entire length of the house. The walls are full of pictures, bookcases, orderliness and straight lines. On the left are two sofas placed side by side at right angles near the window overlooking the garden. Look at our trees, that's our garden. Rural New York, it's almost like a village. Everyone knows each other here, my friend lives next door. We even have a greengrocer where I can buy his own homegrown vegetables. Paula Fox has a deep, husky voice with a laugh almost always trembling at the base of her throat. I had imagined her to be sterner, more reserved. Instead, I look into a face which, although serious, radiates with warmth from within. We sit down. There is a little table with photographs across from us. She points to one at the front. That is Mr. Corning, the minister who was my guardian for the first six years of my life. The photograph shows a friendly man with large eyes, wavy, lightly graying hair, and a bashful smile. And that is my father, an attractive, curly-haired man. That was before the alcohol and the cancer. Children's drawings, photos of grandchildren. There is no picture of Paula's mother. You think I don't have one because of our fraudly relationship? No, there were no conflicts. There was no relationship. She was simply absent, never there for me. But Mr. Corning was good to me. Mr. Corning's name appears frequently during our intense discussion in the next few hours. The 38-year-old welcomed Paula as a child and, quote, treated me with adult respect, something I never got from my parents. Mr. Corning taught her to have faith in herself, Paula mentions. We fast forward through her life. The aimless years of her youth, her early pregnancy, her itinerant years around the continent, her late start in writing. I was 40 when I went with Martin and both my sons to the Greek island of Tassos for a few months. There I began to write my first novel and, a children, and my first children's book. It was the first time I had time to write. 
Paula Fox has written six novels, two autobiographical books, and 23 children's books. These are for children on the cusp of becoming grown up, who occupy that shaky threshold between childhood and adulthood, innocence and experience, toughness and vulnerability. These books are primarily about sick parents, absent parents, and different forms of re rejection. I write for the neglected child within me, and I write for Mr. Corning, who taught me how to read when I was almost five. He gave me Alice in Wonderland and The Jungle Book when I was six. I love these books above everything. We talk about her belated success, the breakthrough thanks to Franzen's essay. It was beautiful and sometimes tormenting to stand in the public light. I was so used to shadows. The lurid side of fame was honed to perfection by Courtney Love, Paula Fox's eldest granddaughter. Courtney was responsible for spreading a rumor that Marlon Brando was her grandfather. Suddenly the funny side of the story gets the better of Paula Fox. Her shoulders are shaking with laughter as she tells me of a visit to her local bookstore. So, Marlon Brando, huh? said Henry, my bookseller, to me, and I said, what are you talking about? He weighed 300 pounds. But back then he didn't, said Henry. From that moment on, the story had lost its sharp edge. Finally, after more than two hours of discussion, Paula called, Marty, are you coming down? The staircase and the living room leads to floors up to the bedroom and further to the very top to both studies. Isn't, that, isn't this an exhausting house for two people in their 80s? Yes, said Paula. They didn't go out much. The exercise they got indoors was just about all they needed. They had a stairlift put in on the next floor for Martin, who has trouble walking. Then I hear Martin Greenberg carefully climbing down the stairs from the top floor. Clever, bright eyes behind the lenses of his glasses express a real joy when he hears me speak German. Martin Greenberg has translated Faust and Heinrich von Kleist. When he was younger, he worked for the same publisher Schockenbooks as Hannah Arendt and was later, on the was later on the editor of the Jewish magazine Commentary. Clarity and determination are reflected in his radiance. May I take a photo of the two of you? Paula Fox sits on the sofa. Are you going to sit next to me, she asks. I always loved sitting next to you, Martin Greenberg says, and this doesn't sound in the least bit tried or gallant, but simply like sheer tenderness. When I return the next day, Paula Fox uses a beautiful image to express the importance of their almost 35-year-old home. I was about 12 when I saw a model of an island in water at the Museum of Natural History for the first time. It was very tiny, but so greatly magnified behind glass that the branches looked like, little, like trees. And the otherwise invisible insects like small animals, the entire flow of life. That is how I see our life here in this neighborhood. It is, an it is an island barely visible to the rest of the world, but when I see it close up, I'm enchanted by it. Later, when she closes the grill behind me and I walk through the gate into the street, I think, she's 82 years old, I will not see her again. Then I walk the two blocks back to the brownstone where I am staying. I also go through a gate there and down two steps to the basement room at Cynthia and Alan Lances. They are a delightful Jewish couple who were both teachers at one time 
and open a B&B where I have been staying on Paula Fox's recommendation. The large room is full of bookcases and books about Brooklyn. They intend to close down their B&B soon. So many unread pages of books I would never get a chance to read. How sad that I would also be here for the first and last time. And then everything turned out differently. I have met Paula Fox again and again, and I have repeatedly stayed at Alan and Cynthia Lance's in Union Street. The room with books piled high to the ceiling would become my temporary home. Suddenly there was a beginning where I had expected endings at every turn. The idea for a book took seed and I would travel across America to trace Paula Fox's life and literary work. A book which would lead me to return to New York time and time again to ask Paula Fox countless questions, to get to know her family and get in touch with her friends. I would search for a path between detachment and intimacy. My trip to Paula Fox took on its real beginning in the year 2009. This was how I got to know Paula Fox. But back to 1923, the year of her birth. What had happened after those parents, Elsie and Paul Fox, had brought her child to a foundling home? Candelaria, the grand, her Cuban, the grand, the Cuban mother of her mother, had heard from this, from uh, this bringing the child to the foundling home, and then she would change the things. When Candelaria returned from Cuba in May or June 1923, where she had worked as a companion for her cousin Luisa for a while, she found out from her son, Leopold, that Paula had been born and brought to a foundling home by her daughter. She immediately went to 68th Street and reclaimed her granddaughter. But what could she do with me, asks Paula in her memoir. Candelaria was obliged to return to Cuba shortly after. Leopold had a friend in the army, Brewster Board. His family lived in Washingtonville, and he was the one who, who suggested she hand me over to Catherine, who carried me in her arms on her bridal journey to Norfolk. Actually, there was this incredible situation that a two-month-old baby should accompany a young, unrelated couple on their honeymoon. Paula Fox, quote, by chance, by good fortune, I had landed in the hands of rescuers, a fire brigade that passed me along from person to person until I was safe. Paula probably fared well in this family where evidently many members not only had a warm heart, but also a talent for disregarding social convention. Paula Fox was five months old when the Congregational Minister Elwood Corning, whose parish stretched all the way to Washingtonville, came to the boards to have a look at the child during one of his visits. He had heard of the, quote, singular way I had arrived, an event that had ruffled the nearly motionless, pond-like surface of village life, and knowing the uncertainty of my future for the boards, for the boards, like most of the neighbors in those years, were poor. He came by one Sunday to look at me. I was awake in the crib. I might have smiled up at him in any ev event. I aroused his interest and compassion. He offered to take me, and partly due to their straightened circumstances, the boards agreed to let me go. 
mangrove church stood snow white and compact like a small ship on a hill directly above the streets. One does not notice this when you drive past as the view is blocked by some tall trees. But if you drive up the short steep path and suddenly it seems so obvious to envisage the time when the minister and little Paula drove up in the Packard 80 years ago. While Uncle Elwood prepared for his service, little Paula sat in the front pew and waited for him. I was known to the congregation at the ministers as the minister's little girl, and thinking of that, I was always gladdened. It was like the Sunday a week earlier, and all the Sundays I could recall. I slipped my hand into his, and he clasped it firmly. My unquestioning trust in Uncle Elwood's love, and in the refuge he had provided for me in the years since Catherine had taken me to her mother, would co abruptly collapse. In an instant, I realized the precariousness of my circumstances. I felt the earth crumble beneath my feet. I tottered on the edge of an abyss. If I fell, I knew I would fall forever. That happened too every Sunday after church, but it lasted no longer than it takes to describe it. That was Paula Fox in Borrowed Finery. Who was this Mr. Corning, whom Paula called Uncle Elwood, and who succeeded in instilling in the five, four, five-year-old child so much trust that she was able to experience her early rejection only as an island of horror rather than an all-encompassing sea of loss? I asked myself this question again and again as I'm driving down the streets towards the Hudson. Protection was the most crucial and generous gift one could offer this child, abandoned by both father and mother. But Mr. Corning had even more in store to offer Paula, curiosity and a zeal for experimentation, imagination. These were all the things Uncle Elwood awakened in Paula, not only whilst reading to her every evening until she could read for herself, but also through his own intellectual curiosity. He must have had a uniquely loving sense for the small things and had obviously taken great pleasure in Paula's humor. He always laughed himself to bits when I, the child with a deep voice, imitated other people. Before his life as a minister, Elwood Corning, born 1885, was a journalist in Virginia. When he was young, his parents had taken a steamboat down the Hudson and his father had said, I want to have a house here. This is the house to which the son from Virginia returned to and where he cared for his father and later his mother. When Elwood Corning took little Paula into his home, he was 38 and lived as a single man caring for his ill mother in that old wooden Victorian house of which, as far as I know, no trace has been left. Then what happened next was that when, when Paula was six, having stayed all those years in Minister Corning's house, her grandmother, Candelaria, all of a sudden um, appeared in the, in the door and reclaimed her grandchild. Minister Corning had asked the parents to give him Paula for adoption and they had refused. So the grandmother took the child away and she took her to Queens, New York. And Paula was very, not only unhappy, but she, when she wrote about it, she said, this was not like um, bad destiny in a fairy tale, it was an amputation being taken away from that minister. One day, when she was 11 years old, her parents took her to a friend's house in Florida. One more move. 
quote, I did not regret saying goodbye to my grandmother. I was going with my parents to Florida to a house owned and infrequently used by a friend of my mother's. I would be where I wanted to be at last, I supposed. I stared at my mother, who drove, holding a cigarette in one hand, smoke, and her dark hair blew toward me in the small back seat of the roadster. The top was down. The car had been bought, my father said, with movie money. First times were events. The first time I had been on a car trip with my parents. The first time we'd been in a diner. Paula, Paula opened her heart to her parents, accepted yet another of their half-hearted attempts to make her part of their life. But were those real attempts? They never gave her any continuity or stability apart from their total heartlessness. Once again, the 11-year-old lives through mounting expectation. On that first evening in Florida, Paula speaks of one of George Bernard Shaw's plays during dinner. She has read it to impress her father, the theater enthusiast. But Paula's comments are cut off by her mother, who throws a highly dramatic temper, temper tantrum. She scolds Paula, telling her that she has no right to speak to her father about Shaw. You do not even have the right to tie your father's shoelaces. And so once again, her parents set off on a trip, leaving the child behind with a friendly Scottish housekeeper. As they drove off, I felt they had not left me so much as forgotten my existence. I was trapped by my age, 12. All through her youth, Paula Fox was never been cared for. Her mother ignored her completely, her father sent her to schools here and there. In my book, I, I, I describe that. As I said before, she had lived in New Hampshire and in Florida, and um, these were like three months in, an high, in a high school. Then the father, got, who was an alcoholic, took her, took her from that school, or he paid for a school and stopped to pay. So um, his interest in her and his capacity was on it off so she she has never she has visited she had attended like 20 schools and has no high school finished ever later in new york she attended juliet school and art school but again nobody would pay for that she worked in many jobs all the time lived in la when she was 17 with a first marriage I read apart from that. Who is Paula Fox as she keeps herself afloat with countless jobs? In Los Angeles, she takes on one job after the next. She models, works as a dance teacher, draws sleeping Mexicans in sombreros on clay pots, mixes shrimp cocktails, and works in a clothing shop basement. With no high school diploma to her name, she drifts through a score of jobs. Through the poverty that goes hand in hand with the life she leads, she does not experience Hollywood as a starry-eyed young girl. She sees it through the eyes of someone anchored in reality as a detached observer. This is something which is reflected um, and told in a very impressive way in her novel, The Western Coast. There is uh, deals with, with this time of her life in Hollywood. So where am I? Later she separates from her husband, lives in New Orleans, travels again to California in 1943 when she was, when she was 20. There she realized that she was pregnant from somebody she hardly knew. 
Doctors in, in San Francisco forced on her to give the child for adoption. She agreed. Paula remembers that the obstetrician had been assertive and pushed forward the adoption. She yielded to his assertion that she would never be able to survive as a single mother. How could she argue against this? 20 years old, no diploma, no income. The delivery lasted 36 hours. When the babies were brought to their mothers, someone glanced over at me and said, not her. Paula says, I was looking out the window at the time and saw a small bird perched in a tree. Paula talks repeatedly about this scene. One time she adds, that is one of the day-to-day -day cruelties human beings do to each other. They know what they do, but they do it anyway. Quote, 10 days later I went to see one of the doctors who had been an intermediary in the adoption and asked for my daughter back. The doctor told me it was legally too late. Paula Fox was unaware that according to Californian law, she was allowed 30 days to revise her decision. I was so easy to be deceived and intimidated. She was told there was no way she could keep the child given her poor, given her poor and helpless state. She found out much later from her daughter that the doctor, Dr. Earl Marsh, was a friend of Linda's adopted parents. Paula had no chance against a deal like that. The separation from her daughter, I imagine, must have been like an experience of death. She knew that the birth and adoption information would remain inaccessible to both her and her daughter, because at that time, as you may um, imagine, only the sealed adoption existed in California, with no information for both um, parents and child. What kind of information was it anyhow? At the time, Paula Fox had written down that she wanted to become a writer later. I was astounded the first time I heard this. At what was possibly one of the most horrific moments of her life, Paula, who had no education, no money or future prospects, would plant a seed of rebellious hope. 49 years would pass before mother and daughter would meet again until Linda would find her mother, the writer. Mm. Now I'm searching my papers. One minute. Yes. Her daughter, Linda Carroll, born in 1944, had been raised by a Jewish couple who had ad adopted her in San Francisco. Later, she had become a psychologist uh, with a, a psychotherapist, and she had five children. She was the mother of five. The oldest child of hers was Courtney Love, whom you may know in another context. So I went to meet Linda Carroll in Oregon, where she right now lives um, with, her, um, with her husband. And the story she told me was that she never had felt like looking for her real mother because she was um, too afraid of finding out what, uh, what the reality might be after all those dreams she had had as a child. But then in 1993, when her oldest daughter 
Courtney um, had her first child, um, Frances Cobain, the daughter of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love. Then Linda decided to look for her real mother. And I will, you, will, you, will read you that um, for the end of my lecture. At the beginning, I had nothing but her name, Paula. My adoptive father, Jack Reesey, had let, let it slip once. I owned a false birth certificate with the name Linda Reesey and had been trying to find out the truth through every possible way for seven months, but to no avail. Then I received a piece of paper on which a small amount of information had been recorded during the adoption. My mother had written down that she wanted to become a writer. In reality, however, she was just a secretary in the South. A Portland group helped me illegally with my search. One day, I had my authentic birth certificate in my letterbox. When I read the name, Paula Fox, it was as if a frozen part of my body suddenly began to melt. I had been brought into the world by a real woman. I was then real. Linda Carroll immediately contacted a private detective who assured her that for a few hundred dollars he would be able to find whoever she was looking for in the US and if he couldn't, she would get her money back. He asked her to send him all the information she had by fax as soon as possible. I ran out to a store that had a fax machine. Unfortunately, it wasn't working and the man said that I should return in 10 minutes. So I decided to wait at the library on the other side of the street. And while I was waiting, I remembered the piece of paper I had received saying my mother wanted to be a writer. I went to the information desk and asked how I could find out by any chance a book existed written by a specific person. I said her name, Paula Fox. Paula Fox retorted the librarian, she's one of the best writers in America. Linda spoke of how the room around her started to spin, how the computer spat out a long list of book titles, how she immediately read a text that fell into her hands, Paula's acceptance speech after winning the Newbery Medal Award. Quote, this effort to recognize is an effort to connect ourselves with the reality of our own lives. It is painful, but if we are to become human, we cannot abandon it. Once set on that path of recognition, we cannot forswear our integral connections with other people. We must make our way towards them as best we can, try to find out what is similar, try to understand what is dissimilar, try to particularize what is universal. Linda told me of how she had been struck by anger and pain as she read those words. How could she have dared? Those were my words, my thoughts. It was as if I recognized her instantly. The way she thinks, how she can create her own enthusiasm, it was all so familiar to me. A jumble of feelings whirled inside me, happiness, love, hatred, anger, and huge, excruciating pain. I went home, looked up her telephone number, called her, and listened as a deep, soft voice answered. I hung up. Then I decided to write her a letter. I did not want anything from her, nothing. I didn't even wish to meet her. Why did she prevent me from sharing my life with her? But I wanted to find out more about, her, about my origins. 
And suddenly, as I placed the letter in a large FedEx envelope, another emotion spread over me, a brief wave of tenderness, a touch of concern. She's almost 70, I said to myself, and I wrote at the top, go slowly. I sent it off on that Tuesday in March 1993. Three days later, on Friday, I had a similar envelope in my letterbox. My first thought was, she's returned it. Then I opened it, and a seven-page letter and photos tumbled out. Beautiful. I could hardly speak to my next client. When Linda Carroll's envelope arrived in Clinton Street in Brooklyn, Paula was almost 70 years old. She had two sons, Adam and Gabe. She had two grandchildren from Adam. She led her life in New York, which was only interrupted by trips to Europe or New England. Most of all, her life took place in her study, there where book after book came to be, where two, two doors down, Martin sat with his papers, and they could talk to each other and hear each other breathe. When Linda's letter arrived and I read the word, go slowly, I knew she had found me, Paula Fox describes. I went to the stairs and called up to Martin, she's found me. The letter in March 1993 exploded the horizon of her life in all possible directions. Not only had she found her daughter, but also a son-in-law, five grandchildren and one great-grandchild. She had to look towards the west, to that feared city, San Francisco, so laden with pain. She would be able to look back to a trace in the past, which was no longer lost in fog, but instead had a goal and a name, Linda Carroll, her daughter with whom she, she exchanged letters at times daily for a period of three months. These letters brought me both despair and joy at the same time. We told each other everything, everything about my life, particularly and above, above about the, uh, the adoption. Three months long, until Paula herself suggested to her daughter that they could meet up there in San Francisco, where they had lost each other. Something was about to begin, which her husband, about which her husband Tim said, it is as if you had a lover. Linda lights up when she remembers this time, a love story. Paula and I wrote to each other every day for three months. Then, when the day came, I sat there waiting. Finally, I saw her getting out of the plane. This was not a film. It was not opera. It was real. She approached me. I touched her arm, and she said to me, Hello, you are so pretty. And you are not really old, I said to her. What would you like? She asked. A cigarette and a drink? We sat in an airport bar and laughed like hysterical girls. We talked non-stop for three days. Those were three of the most extraordinary days of my life. To have an experience that was a little surreal, like something from another world. Thank you. Thanks for listening and feel welcome to ask me anything about <laughs> the book and Paula Fox, what you would be interested in. <laughs> or, um, yes. Why does um, Linda didn't know, doesn't know um, about Paula Fox that she was um, once of the best writers? Mm -hmm. Good question. I haven't asked her that. But it seems that 
that she hadn't read her books at that time. She had, yeah, she had published many of the young adult books, but she had not, she had not read them. But the librarian knew. Do you have a favorite Yes. <laughs> the God of Nightmares. Yeah, it's the, the, the last of her... She has only six novels. And The God of Nightmares is the last of these six. It's written in 93, I think. And it goes back, I mean, many of her novels go back to a certain period of her life and recall the experiences. And this goes back to when she lived in New Orleans as a 19-year-old and had a, as she, as she tells it, a very happy year there. A year of being, um, being taken care of in a way by a, a writer couple who was a bit older than herself. And um, seems to me it seems a bit as if this were the birth of a writer in her so and it's a it's a very beautiful new orleans book i went i traveled to new orleans for for my book and i had in fact the feeling that i could find some of that what i what the book had told me about in in the ambience yeah i mean the the sad thing is that after, because I, I said that The God of Nightmares was written in 93, and three years later, in 96, um, in a, during a visit in Jerusalem, she got, um, Paula got attacked by somebody who knocked her down to the ground, um, and she, um, uh, she was without consciousness, and she, in that, in, in a period that followed, she had lost her language. So she found she found her language back over the next year and wrote um, borrowed finery, the memoir of her youth in that period. But what she says today is that after that attack, she never got her her capacity for fiction back. She could not invent stories. So this was, in fact, her last novel, The God of Nightmares, yeah. I have one more question. <laughs> um, in the years, so she didn't write until she was in her 40s. That's right. So the time between the 20s and the 40s, was there any, do you, did you feel like, did you or did she talk about any writing she had done? Did she even try? Or yes. Well, it seems that she's tried since since she was a student at school, that she always tried. But um, yes, and she had, in her first marriage, she had um, given something to a, sent something to a mag to magazines. And the magazine who um, which published her uh, stories was the um, Negro Review. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. It's a. It's a. I, I saw that. I saw those publications. This was in the um, in the late fifties or so. <laughs> and she. It, it. I mean, it tells a story in itself that she sent them sent her stories to the Negro Review to be published, and then later she sent also out some stories to Commentary, the Jewish magazine, um, and there she knew Martin Greenberg. That was how the two of them. Um, got to know each other. In fact, she, it seems that she had always um, written in a way, but um, she has had 
I think in her late 20s, she has had two other sons. The, the marriage um, f fell apart very quickly, so she was again um, um, a single mother, quite poor. At, uh, so, so in fact, she says, until 40, I had never time to write. <laughs> Great. Then I, if there isn't anything else, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.